You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome back, men, women, children, old people, everybody in between. We are so happy to have you. Uh, I am, of course, your Bearded Baptist host, Justin. Uh, Welcome to episode 77 of Distilling Theology. I am joined, of course, by none other than the long locks and the flowing voice of my good Presbyterian friend, Balake Courtright. How you doing, brother? Dude. It's it's been a long couple of days. I was very surprised when I found out today was Tuesday and not later in the week. But uh, <laughs> praise the Lord, I've installed an air conditioning unit in here that has substantially cooled the temperature of my apartment. So I'm in a much much more uh, comfortable estate than I was uh, yesterday. So that is good, and I'm grateful uh, that we are joined by a special guest this evening. Um, my pastor from First Presbyterian Church in Schenectady uh, was gracious enough to spend some time with us tonight to speak to us on a very important topic. Um, uh, my pastor is Mark Dunn, uh, and I'll let him introduce himself a little bit more, but I've been very grateful to sit under his preaching at the church, and uh, the sermons are on YouTube, so if you guys look up First Presbyterian Schenectady, uh, we, we just put a pause on Isaiah, and we've been going into the Beatitudes for the summer, which has just been a tremendous joy, so I'm grateful for that. But Pastor Mark, welcome, uh, welcome to Distilling Theology. Thank you, thank you, Blake. Thank you, Justin. It's a, it's a delight to be with you tonight, and uh, thank you for the privilege of uh, sharing with you tonight. And uh, I look forward to talking about the Lord's Supper. And uh, so, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for being here. And just for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit where are you from? How long have you been? pastoring and and how did you get into it sure um yeah i uh as you can probably tell from my accent um i'm not a a local um i i pastor here in schenectady new york uh so i'm a i'm a pastor in the pits in the excuse me in the new york state presbytery and i've pastored here for about seven years uh prior to that i pastored in the Pittsburgh Presbytery of the PCA uh, for about 10 years. And prior to that, I pastored in the United Kingdom for about seven years. So I've been a pastor about 25 years. Um, you know, people, people ask me all the time, where are you from? And I say, West Virginia. And uh, some believe me and some just laugh, but uh, I was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So I'm, I'm an Ulster Scot. My uh, my mom and dad are both uh, Scottish, but I was born in uh, Belfast, which is the hometown of C.S. Lewis. Uh, so this is a this is a this is a true Scots Irish accent. So I'm uh, that's where I'm from. Uh, my wife is actually from the United States. Um, she's from uh, upstate New York here. And uh, we have three kids. Uh, two of them were born in Ulster, 
which is the northern province of Ireland. And one of our children, uh, Benjamin, the youngest boy, was born here in the United States. Um, so it's it's yeah, I've, I'm a I've I've pastored in the U.S. I think for about seventeen years. Wow. Well, we're grateful to have you at First Pres uh, in Schenectady for sure. And the first time that uh, y'all invited me over for dinner, you and I sipped some of uh, the whiskey that we're going to be trying tonight. Uh, it's the first time I'd had it was with you. And uh, tonight we're trying Bushmills 10-year-old. It is an Irish single malt whiskey. And um, apparently it's the youngest of their aged or age-dated single malts. It's triple distilled from 100% malted barley, matured a minimum of 10 years in uh, ex-bourbon casks and Oloroso sherry casks. And this particular blend or, or particular um, whiskey was awarded the best Irish single malt whiskey in the world at the World Whiskey Awards in 2007. And the company has quite a bit of history too, as I understand. But uh, as we're, we get in and start uh, smelling some of the notes, Mark, you had a, uh, an entertaining story about this uh, when I was over at dinner. Do you remember, uh, I think it was when you, you had traveled to the distillery with uh, your family? I do, yeah. Um, the Bushmills Distillery, I think, is actually the oldest uh, whiskey distillery in the world, uh, 1608. They received a license, and I took I took the the family there for a tour. Um, I'm thinking maybe five years ago, and uh, I asked the boys. I I have three boys, and uh, I hope I don't get into trouble with any of your listeners for taking my three boys to a whiskey distillery. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I I asked I asked the boys, "Do you like being in here?" And the youngest one said, "I really do." And I said, "Why?" And he said. Uh, he said, I like the smell. And I said, what does it smell like? He said, it, it smells like Christmas pudding. <laughs> um, I love to bake Christmas puddings and uh, which, you know, Christmas puddings are, are, are a British thing. It's a, it's a, it's a suet pudding. It's a fruit pudding. And you traditionally add whiskey to the pudding. And so the children like that Christmas dessert of Christmas pudding and, so the young, young Benjamin realized that he could smell <laughs> whiskey. So it was a neat, a neat story. That is a good story. And uh, on that note, Justin, what do you smell in the whiskey? There's only one right answer. <laughs> Christmas pudding, man. <laughs> Christmas pudding. Well, there's almost, a, there's almost a hint of banana as well. Yeah, this is a really sweet and... Uh, really pleasant whiskey. I was very surprised because again, I haven't, I haven't had a lot of Irish whiskeys, partly due to the uh, kind of obsession I've had with Scotch um, and the interest in American whiskey. But the few that I have had have typically been the major, you know, your your Jameson or um, some of these things that I wasn't terribly Red impressed breath. by. But I remembered uh, when we sipped this for the first time, I, I found it quite quite appealing. Peeling like a banana. Wow, there it is. Well, I, I can't top that. So let's get in and uh, taste it for a moment and then we'll, we'll open in prayer. Cheers. Ooh. It's medium. It's not like, it's not heavy at all, but it's not super light. Very fruity. There is that pudding sort of. I was going to say banana pudding, a little bit in the taste and some honey. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of cinnamon, cinnamon as well. It's very warming and, and 
appealing and pleasant. Um, yeah, it's not overly complex or anything like that. Mark, what do you like about this uh, this whiskey? I, I do like the taste. I like I like that fruitiness, as you say, mm. and I I like the fact that it it has a little bit of a kick. But I, you know, I, I like the fact that it's I like to drink it because it it reminds me of where I come from, mm. and uh, I'm actually using a glass here which has the the four the four flags of the four uh, provinces in Ireland. So the one, the one with the red cross is the flag of Ulster, which is the, the Northern province. So yeah, when I, when I drink a Scotch whiskey or a, when I drink a Scotch or when I drink an Irish whiskey, I think of my homeland and, uh, and just the rich heritage and history there. Uh, especially when you drink from a distillery that started in 1608. Yeah, I mean, before the writing of mm-hmm. the the Westminster Confession and the the Baptist Confessions, and that's something I f- I find interesting as as Justin and I have gone through this journey. You think about the the ten years that the liquid sat in the barrel, and how much changed from the time that the distillers put the put the mash into the barrel, uh, or the or the distilled liquid into the barrel, and when they bottle it, uh, how much how much happened in the world in a decade, uh, but also in the length of time that a distillery was opened or since a, a recipe has been used, how many things have happened in history and, and in those corners of the world. So I find that very fascinating and, and intriguing, but yeah, this is great. I also really like the price point. Um, I think in my local liquor store, this is around $50 a bottle, which I'm quite pleased with for that price for a, uh, for an imported spirit. Um, yeah, for 50 bucks. So excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, before we jump into our topic tonight and discuss uh, the Lord's Supper, Pastor Mark, would you lead us in prayer from the Valley of Vision? I would be delighted. The Lord's Supper. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of, thy, of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast. And though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. And by spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Saviour. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love. Receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, 
agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until the day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. Amen. Mm. Amen. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful prayer. Yeah, it absolutely is. So, speaking of the supper, uh, tonight we're talking about the Lord's Supper. Not to be confused with any other supper, let's be honest. Amen. Um, One of the sacraments or ordinances, depending on your covenant persuasion. Blake, why don't we open up with just a a brief reading from the Westminster Confession uh, to talk about what that is. Sure. Um, What is the Lord's Supper? I just have very quickly here from, this is Westminster Confession, chapter 29, article 1, which reads, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefit thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further encouragement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Now, this sacrament, uh, sacrament ordinance uh, memorial, there, there are many terms that have been used to describe the supper, and we can circle back to these later of why we observe it. You know, there's the, the words of institution in Matthew 26 where Jesus institutes the supper and Paul's instruction by inspiration of the spirit regarding the supper found in first Corinthians 11. But pastor Mark, before we get to that, could you give us kind of a a quick view of what are the major theological persuasions uh, that are out there regarding this supper? Because even though it is this beautiful picture of, of union with Christ and communion in the body, there is quite a lot of division among denominational persuasions regarding the meaning of the supper and, and what is actually happening in it. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this gospel ordinance, this um, sacrament of the Lord Jesus. And I, I really do view it as sacrament of the Lord Jesus. I, I view baptism as sacrament of the Holy spirit. Um, you know, all, all the our, the two, the two sacraments we have are sacraments of God. Uh, but there has been so much division over this sacrament of the Lord Jesus. And really for the last thousand years in the church, there has been much division, especially over the issue of how Christ is present mm. in the supper and also over the issue of the uh, efficacy of the sacrament or the gospel ordinance. And really there are, there really are four main positions or four main views uh, today in the church. Uh, some of these positions can be, you know, further fractured into a number of positions, but uh, essentially there are four. Um, firstly, there is the Roman Catholic position. Um, you know, oftentimes people uh, relate to it or associate with it the the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is part of the Roman Catholic position. Um, And the Roman Catholic position 
essentially teaches the real substantial bodily presence of Christ in the ordinance in uh, the sacrament. And of course, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church would use the term holy mass or the mass to refer to this ordinance. Let, let me just name the other positions and then I will, I will circle back and talk a little bit more about the Roman Catholic position because I guess you want me to explain each position a little bit. Uh, there's also the Lutheran position uh, and with the, with the Lutheran position is often associated the theological term consubstantiation uh, and then the memorialist position and then the, the reformed position so let me come back to the Roman Catholic position and transubstantiation. In 1551, the, the Council of Trent set forth the doctrine of transubstantiation as the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, this was done in response to uh, the teachings of the Protestant reformers. The Roman Catholic Church established this doctrine of transubstantiation as the official position of the church and that that position has never been recanted on or, or changed um, the council made a strong affirmation of the real substantial presence of christ in uh the sacrament um they defended both the doctrine and the terminology of transubstantiation and i actually have a quotation uh from the catholic catechism here which states, to just clarify what this doctrine is, transubstantiation, it states, by the consecration, the substantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. So by the consecration of the priest, hmm. uh, transubstantiation of the bread and wine is brought about under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself living and glorious is present in a true real substantial manner in his body and his blood with his soul and divinity hmm. uh, end of quote so that's you know that, that's a quotation from the catholic catechism so this this position has been greatly and strongly criticized obviously uh you know for being being both unbiblical and for introducing Aristotelian philosophy into Christianity. Um, and if we want to talk a little bit, a little bit more about that later, we can. Um, the second, so, so there's a real focus here in this Roman Catholic position on the real bodily presence of Christ in the supper. The Lutheran position. Consubstantiation, I think. Consubstantiation, thank you. This also teaches the real bodily presence of Christ. Um, Luther strongly rejected the Roman Catholic position, um, but nevertheless, Luther understood Christ's words, this is my body, in a literal sense. Um, Luther also believed Christ to be corporally or bodily present in the supper. Um, and the way he the way he understood that to 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 happen was that that was that Christ's physical body was present either in with or under the bread uh, and the wine in the supper. The example sometimes given 
is that Christ's body is present in the bread as water is present in a sponge. The water is not the sponge, but it is present there mm. under or with or by the sponge. Um, so it's, it's, it's a rather complex position. Um, Luther wanted to interpret the words, uh, this is my body literally, um, but did not, did not hold to the Catholic position that the transubstantiation occurred. Uh, the memorialist position, which is held by, you know, I think some reformed people, um, mm. is a position that, uh, you know, insists that the words of Christ, when he said, this is my body, it's a position that insists that these words should not be taken literally. Um, this position rests, excuse me, uh, rejects the idea of the real substantial bodily presence of Christ in the supper. Um, Zwingli used the illustration of a man setting out on a journey who leaves his ring with his wife as a reminder to her of his return. So in that sense, it's a, it's a memorial, it's a memory. Um, Zwingli argued that there are innumerable passages in scripture where the word uh, is means signifies. Uh, so according to Zwingli, the expression, this is my body, must be understood metaphorically or uh, figuratively. Mm. Um, so I, I should say, I think, you know, I think later interpreters of Zwingli have reduced his position somewhat to a memorialist position. And I think if we read Zwingli broader, we perhaps find that he's closer to Calvin than perhaps some modern commentators would lead us to believe. Um, but I, you know, I think you know many of his writings were seeking to combat either the Lutheran or the Roman Catholic position, and so his, I, th I think his position is sometimes dis distorted by modern by modern readers. Uh, the Reformed position, which is, you know, espoused by a number of writers, not least John Calvin, um, is, a, is the position that, that, you know, Christ is present in the supper, but Christ is present spiritually, not, not, in, a, not in a bodily form. And that, and, and that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is, is certainly more than sim simply a memorial. Um, you know, uh, some theologians believe that that you know Calvin's writings on the Lord's Supper are some of his greatest contributions to theology. And uh, Calvin Calvin understood that the the incarnation and the ascension were our understanding of those two teachings uh, were essential to our understanding of the Lord's Supper, um, in the sense that. You know, because of because Christ took upon Himself a body and blood, because of the incarnation, and because He was able then to give Himself as a sacrifice for sinners, we are able to receive Him and His benefits through His incarnation. But because of His ascension, because of His returning to the right hand of the Father, Christ is not bodily present in the gospel ordinance of the Lord's Supper. 
But because of his ascension, he is now able to give the Spirit. And so by the Spirit, we have communion with Christ in the Supper. And of course, the Reformers, Zwingli and Calvin, both were very helpy, very, very, very helpful. And Luther were very helpful in making the point that, you know, that it's essential that we come to the ordinance with faith. Uh, unlike the Catholic position, you know, Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin emphasized the importance of faith in the gospel ordinance. So those are the three, three main positions, the, the Roman Catholic, Lutheran, uh, memorialist position, and Reformed position. I was going to jump in. So bearing in mind all of these sort of views, uh, assuming you've come to a, a Reformed view or some variant uh, of, a, of an Orthodox view on the Lord's Supper, I guess the next question then is is the practice, right? How How is it to be observed? Um, how frequent should it be? Uh, how is it to be administered? You know, especially in a day and age when people are doing it over Zoom <laughs> uh, in, in different uh, congregations and things like that. Um, how do you, uh, quote, how would you like fence the table, right? How would you protect it from and only administer it to the right people? Um, tell us a little bit more about the Lord's Supper in practice as a minister of it. Well, you know, my, uh, in, in the congregation where I serve, uh, the Lord's Supper is administered monthly. Um, and, you know, I think when when you read the scriptures, I think I my my personal position is that the Lord's Supper should be administered frequently. Um, you know, to the Corinthians, the the apostle writes, you know, as often as you do this, and and so in those words, I I believe Justin, uh, we are given some flexibility in how often we administer the sacrament the ordinance but it would seem to me that it's important it's a very important it's a gospel ordinance and i think it's important to administer it frequently um you know in the history of the church there has been you know a wide spectrum of, of practices in terms of frequency and in some denominations it, it's it's administered weekly and in some churches it's administered actually annually uh, which is which is quite incredible, um, and um, so yeah. But I, I I think I think the scriptures clearly teach that it should be administered often. And to that, a question that comes up, and this is this isn't an episode on some of the the covenantal issues that crop up, um, but there is a question that that I get from my Creed Baptist friends. Um, of who are the proper recipients of the Lord's Supper. Um, I think in some senses, our Creative Baptist brethren have an easier uh, or maybe, maybe more apparent on the surface answer to that of those who've been baptized, who professed faith in Christ. So, and I know we're getting a little bit more into sacramentology and sacramental theology here, but how in a Reformed view, in a Presbyterian view, do we distinguish those to whom we administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper from those to whom we administer the sacrament of baptism. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Reformed Presbyterian 
um, pastors and elders would normally go to First Corinthians eleven. Um, you know where there are where there are warnings. Um, you know, obviously that's one of the important texts with regards to the Lord's Supper. And in that passage, there are warnings to those who would receive the supper uh, with regards to their um, saving knowledge and their maturity in the faith. And and so in Presbyterian churches, um, it, you know, it it is emphasized when the when the table is fenced, it is emphasized that that those who receive receive by faith in Jesus Christ. And that they are able to discern the body and blood of Christ, and that they're living a life of repentance, that they're living a life um, of love toward their brethren, and that they are of sufficient maturity in the faith to understand what you know this this uh, gospel ordinance is all about. Um, so that you know that normally um, would restrict the sacrament to young children. Um, though there have been, you know, there have been, there are some uh, reformed traditions that have allowed children to receive the sacrament. But I, I, I think, I think there are warnings in scripture, but warnings to those who receive it. I actually have that passage pulled up right here. I'll just read it very quickly here from first Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I'll start in verse 26, uh, where the apostle writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he goes on to warn, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So that warning in 1 Corinthians in particular, as from what I understand, is there are people in the congregation who were becoming ill and apparently some who had died because of taking the supper in an unworthy manner. Um, I don't know if that is kind of the, the, the broader understanding of that passage, but that's how I've uh, understood that to be. So it is it is serious, and I think... Um, you know, Justin, we're going to be getting into some episodes on baptism so we can hash out our, uh, differences in, in, in who receives baptism. But I thought that was a great answer that those who, those who yeah. participate in the Lord's supper must discern the body of Christ, lest we drink judgment yeah. on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Insofar as the Lord's supper is concerned, I think you and I would agree, um, as far as, is who's worth like who's going to be participating in that particular ordinance. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that first Corinthians chapter is a really helpful chapter on, on the administration of this uh, sacrament, this gospel ordinance. If you look at the wider context of that chapter, you know, there were divisions in the church, in the congregation. And, you know, the chapter begins with that. There, there seems to have been, people in the congregation who were in conflict with one another mm. and you know this, this this gospel ordinance that signifies and uh, and seals our union with christ and with one another their actions in the church were going against the very thing that 
that this meal signifies um, our union with Christ and with one another. And then if you look at the narrower context of the passage and get into those into those very verses where Paul talks about, you know, that which I received from the Lord, I also delivered on to you. And he talks about examining yourself and um, and eating in a worthy manner. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the narrower context is, is certainly, you know, teaches about um, the importance of having maturity in, maturity in the faith and uh, walking close with Christ and having that, you know, just having a, an understanding of what this gospel ordinance is about. And on the flip side, yeah. we uh, I think the Westminster Confession does a beautiful job. As you alluded to in the talking about the four views in a rejection of the Romish view, yeah, particularly in Article 2, where it says, In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. So can we circle back to that a little bit? I know we we talked about coming back to the Catholic view. Obviously, the Westminster Confession and the the London Baptists preclude transubstantiation and and the, the, the popish view, but can you elaborate that a little bit more? What are some of the other things that are that are connected in that, and why we, along with Calvin, along with Luther, along with Zwingli, are so quick to reject the Catholic Mass uh, and their understanding of of the Supper, and they refer to it. And I think that the Orthodoxes as well use the older term of Eucharist. Yeah, yeah the the term Eucharist is probably the term that was used in the early Church. Mm. Um, you know, the Mass or the Holy Mass is a term that would be used in the Roman Catholic and Greek churches today. Uh, but, you know, there's a number of serious problems with, with the Roman and Greek Catholic churches in their interpretation of this, this uh, sacrament. Uh, you know, there is so much superstition attached to their doctrine, um, which is not biblical. And, and many of the many of the reformed writers make this point and also make the point that it destroys the biblical teaching on the finished work of Christ. Mm. Um, you know, when we look at the book of Hebrews, for example, in chapter eight and chapter nine, where it talks about Christ dying once for all, um, the Roman Catholic doctrine really undermines the the greatness and the importance of the finished work of Christ. Mm. Um, and, you know, the reformers also talked about the idolatry of the mass and it's, idol- it, it's idolatrous in this sense that if, if, if Christ's body is present in the elements, then it causes the worshipers to worship the elements. And, and of course, if, if the bread has been transubstantiated into the body of Christ and there is bread left over after the ceremony, you cannot dispose of that bread, but that bread must be kept until the next service. Mm. 
and and that's what is done in the in the Roman Catholic and and Greek Catholic churches. Um, and in the 13th century, because of this difficulty, they stopped serving the wine to the masses. Um, so, uh, you know, these are some of the difficulties that, that arise with the position. Um, <clears throat> in terms, you know, I referred earlier also to the uh, Aristotle, Aristotle's philosophy on Roman Catholicism. And, um, and, you know, Luther is particularly critical of this because he makes the point that for, for the first 1,200 years of the Christian church, this teaching did not exist in the church. Hmm. But someday the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church brings in the teaching of Aristotle. And while the, while the elements, bread and wine, still appear to be bread and wine, they call them the accidents. Mm. The substance is really the body and blood of Christ. And they get that from Aristotle. Um, but that teaching was never in the early church. Um, so for all these reasons, the Roman Catholic position is, is problematic. And, uh, and here, just one final point. In terms of water baptism, and Justin will really sit up when I say this one, in terms of water baptism, we never talk about water baptism, the, you know, the sacrament or the gospel ordinance of water baptism in terms of, in terms of transubstantiation. We never say that the water is changed into the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, but we, you know, it's done with, with the bread and the wine. So, you know, we could spend a long time going down any one of those issues that I just raised, but these are some of the problems with, with, with the, with the Catholic teaching of the real substantial presence of Christ in the ordinance. Yeah. Well, I, I think at least up until relatively recently, I, I always conflated the, the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran view in many ways. Could you maybe distinguish them a little bit and then explain why we would disagree with the Lutheran view on the Lord's Supper? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we can complement or we can, um, you know, agree with Luther on a number of subjects. You know, Luther really emphasized the importance of faith. Mm-hmm. Luther really rejected the Roman Catholic position that that the bread and wine were transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Um, and, uh, and, and Luther really emphasized, you know, the, the fact that, um, that when we come to the table, we receive Christ and his benefits. And so I think all those things that are in Luther's teachings um, are really, really helpful. But I think where Luther goes astray is that, you know, Luther, Luther subscribed to all the historic confessions. But I, I think his doctrine of the Lord's Supper contradicts the historic confessions in this regard. You know, Luther did not believe that the body and blood were changed and excuse me, excuse me, the bread and the wine were changed into the body and blood, but he believed that Christ was bodily present 
you know, above or under or around the elements. And he, 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 he interpreted the words of Jesus, this is my body, in that way because he wanted, he wanted to literally interpret the scriptures. He wanted, he wanted a literal interpretation of those words, this is my body. And so he believed, Luther believed in the, the ubiquity of the human nature of Christ. Mm. He believed that, that Christ's human nature was ubiquitous just as his divine nature was. And I think I think that's where we have to leave Luther, um, because certainly that that doctrine of the ubiquity of the human nature of Christ is in contradiction to the the classic statements of faith in the church. Um, but, yeah. Sure. Sure. yeah. Right, and I think that we haven't gotten to Christology yet in our in our podcast, but we just finished. Uh, an expansive series on the doctrine of God. And in part of <laughs> That's that, one way to know, put we, it, we, yeah. did th- right, we did three episodes on the doctrine of the Trinity in the middle of that. And one of, uh, one of the follow-up episodes with uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the inseparable operations of the Trinity and how that doctrine, because of the incarnation, what happens in regards to the human nature of Christ doesn't, fold back into his deity. And so the suffering of the son on the cross does not result in patripassianism where the father suffers on the cross because of the single divine essence. And like, and we've already had that discussion, but again, we're coming back to our incarnational theology affects the other things we believe. And mm-hmm. I, I love how you've brought that out here that the, the Lutheran view places a divine attribute, whether wittingly or unwittingly, on the human nature of Christ yes. by making the body and blood of Christ, the physical attributes of his nature, of his human nature, ubiquitous or omnipresent and, and able to be uh, participated in all around the globe at the same time by Christians. And that kind of falls apart of of what we what we have in the boundaries of the Chalcedonian definition <laughs> regarding uh the, the the mixture or the, the the lack of mixture rather of the natures uh and so i think it there's a comfort in memorialism i know i certainly for a large portion of my life held a memorialist position until i started to study mm-hmm. reformed theology and move away from it uh, and i think many of our listeners may if they've never studied this, they may kind of hold that view by default. So, um, because I think it's very popular in broad American evangelicalism, which is a large portion of our listening audience. So if we could examine that a little bit further, we don't necessarily have to examine Zwingli specifically, as you alluded to some of the context and, and commentaries may be a little different there, but in memorialism, why is it that we as, as reformed believers uh, who hold to the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, but who also recognize uh, that Scripture is interpreting other Scripture, why do we not hold a memorial view? Um, if we're not going to say that, that Christ is bodily present in it, then why do we reject uh, the view that says it's, it's merely a remembrance or a memorial? Yeah. I, th- I, think, I think you're right in what you said. I think a lot of evangelicals a lot of conservative evangelicals on both sides of the pond 
you know, the Atlantic Ocean hold to this position by default. And perhaps one of the reasons they do that is because they haven't read Calvin mm. or they really haven't read other good reformed writers on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Um, but I, I really review, I really, I personally, uh, you know, consider the memorialist uh, position as a, as a reductionism of the mm. biblical teaching. It's, it's to reduce the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching on the, on, on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is much wider and broader and deeper than memorialism. You know, if you look at Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, you know, all the major passages on the doctrine, it teaches much more than memorialism. And, you know, if we were to define the memorialist position as simply professing faith, you know, much like we do in in other parts of the service, you know, we we come to a service of worship and we profess faith. Uh, if we reduce the doctrine of the Lord's Supper to that, simply a profession of faith, I think we are bypassing or ignoring many many Bible passages that teach much more. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, and I, I think too. Um, just for my Baptist friends that are listening, uh, I would contend that you can also be uh, faithful to the London Baptist and, and the Baptist faith and message, and still hold a reformed view of the Lordness of, of uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, I think Spurgeon is a good model of that—the idea that Christ is indeed spiritually present uh, as we take the Lord's Supper, and and that there's nothing uh, that would preclude you in the 1689. Uh, that would preclude you from from taking it uh, a step further than what's what's written in the confession. Definitely, that's good. Um, I think we also have. I mean, I would encourage folks go over to reformedstandards.com, pull up the Westminster, pull up the London Baptist, and go to the chapters on the Lord's Supper and read the articles and hover over the proof texts and examine and and marinate on this doctrine and on the way that it's that it's taught. Um, but that brings us obviously to the Reformed Presbyterian view, the, the Calvinistic view, which obviously we, often terms that's kind of lodged in our soteriology, but we forget that Calvin's view and Calvinism is uh, a system of theology, not just uh, a view of, of our salvation and God's pre- electing grace. But uh, Pastor Mark, if you could talk to us a little bit now on, uh, we've, we've talked, we've spoken against the Catholic view why we reject Lutheran view, why we, we reject bare memorialism. So what is it that, that Calvin argues that the Reformed and, and obviously the Presbyterians pick up on and embrace regarding um, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and, and how it's administered and what happens in the Supper? Yeah, um, Calvin, Calvin himself um, you know, taught that the Lord's Supper, firstly, is a sign and a seal whereby the gospel is, confor- is confirmed to us through the signs of the body and blood of Christ. And so w- we receive assurance of our salvation by feeding on Christ spiritually in the supper. So firstly, the supper is a sign and a seal of the gospel. Mm. 
assuring us of our salvation. And then secondly, the supper gives us an opportunity to respond by faith to the goodness and grace of God, uh, you know, through bringing thanksgiving to God. The, the supper thirdly was a call to holiness, you know, because we are united to Christ and his body, you know, the mystical body, we are exhorted to brotherly love. You know, Calvin understood Christ to be spiritually present in the supper by his spirit. I think Calvin is brilliant on, if, if you allow me to use that, you know, that word in relation to Calvin, I think Calvin is brilliant on this point in that he connects the incarnation and the ascension to the Lord's Supper. And, you know, Christ is bodily present in the glory at the right hand of the Father, uh, but he is present by his spirit. And, uh, and so there's a call to holiness. Uh, there's an opportunity to respond by faith in the supper, and the supper is a sign and seal of the gospel. Um, so those are the things that are really, I think, that Calvin really emphasized strongly. Um, and, uh, you know, in, and I, I, I'm kind of holding my, uh, you know, holding back my powder here a little bit because I think the scriptures teach a number of other things in relation to the supper. But I'm going to pause there for a moment in case you want to bring a follow-up question. I'm good. Justin, do you have anything? So far, so good. The only thing I will pause to say is remind folks that this week's episode of Distilling Theology is sponsored by Lagos 9, one of the most powerful Bible study softwares available. And if you want to follow along with us, open up a digital Bible with an indexed resource, open up Calvin's Institutes, and go to the sections where he writes on the Lord's Supper. You can do that and more by visiting lagos.com slash distillingtheology. Take 10% off your first order uh, of, of the software as well as get five free books. Thank you again to Lagos for making this episode possible. Now, back into the episode. We were going on uh, speaking about the Reformed view and, and particularly Calvin, and you said you alluded to uh, having this, this powder keg or this, this uh, yeah. extra firepower here. So let's, let's yeah. go for it. You know, I, I think as, we go th- as you go through the biblical texts, I think the purpose of the supper is, um, you know, for me, there are really five purposes for this doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The first is commemoration. You know, the memorialists are absolutely right. Commemoration is an important part of the supper. You know, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. Um, that is so, so clear. Um, it's clearly borne out by the words of Jesus when he said, do this in remembrance of me. But the scriptures teach more than that. They teach more than commemoration. They also teach communion. Um, and th- I think this is very clear in texts like 1 Corinthians 10, 16, or 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, um, And and even in, even in sc- passages of scripture that are not, you know, the um, primary context is not the Lord's Supper. You know, scriptures like John 6.35 or, or John 6.56 to 57, um, you know, um, you know I, I'm throwing out those references so that the viewers can look them up. Um, we don't have time to read them all tonight. But, you know, in those scriptures, there, there clearly is teaching that the that the believer has communion, a union and a communion with Christ. And in the context of the supper, 
there is something different happening, I believe, um, when we come to this table and we receive this bread and this wine by faith following the preaching of the gospel. Um, you know, um, but I think there's more than communion. I think this is a covenantal meal. You know, the, the great promises of God um, in Christ are brought back to us when we come to the table of, of the Lord. Um, it's a covenantal meal. And this is certainly borne out in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 20. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, and it takes us back to the to the covenantal meals under the old covenant. Um, you know, Exodus chapter 12, chapter 28, the, the renewing of the covenant. Um, you know, numerous times in scripture, we read about the patriarchs having me, meals, special meals. And I, um, so I, this is a covenantal meal. So I think that's part of the purpose of the, of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Also, also, we have to remember the scriptures clearly teach that the context for this meal is the church. You know, mm. we, in the Reformed Church, we don't believe in private communions or, you know, um, we believe that it's, it's for the assembled church. And, you know, I think that's very clear in the Corinthian passages and the Acts passages. Um, it's for the church. And then fifthly and lastly, I think the scriptures very clearly teach, and everyone sitting on the end of their seat at this point, it anticipates <laughs> the consummation of Christ and his bride. Um, Matthew 26, 29, Mark 14, 25, Ephesians 5, 27, Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Um, the, the coming together in the glory, you know, of Christ and his bride and all, all that is present in the supper and, um, and, you know, reformed believers, I think, um, are you know seek to to bring all that into their understanding of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper? Man, that is really good. That's so encouraging. So, guys, uh, if you're listening, go back. I'll put I'll put uh, markers on the show for that five purposes of the supper section, so you can go back if you have you have the notes app and open up your your scriptures when you get home and and read and examine. Um, thank you for that, Mark. That was, that was wonderful. Justin, do you have that reference there for me? Yeah. So Westminster 29, seven says this about the Lord's supper. It says worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in the sacrament do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified in all the benefits of his death, the body and the blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are their outward sense, uh, to their outward senses. So with that, what are uh, the benefits that one receives upon taking the Lord's Supper? Um, and, and I guess alternatively, what might the consequences be if you take it in an unworthy manner? 
Yeah, we we could spend a long time talking about the benefits. I think sure. to just to 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 just itemize the benefits. I think firstly, the death of Christ is proclaimed. Uh, the death of Christ is set before uh, those who come by faith when we come to the table of the Lord, um, and it's you know just just as when the gospel is preached to us we it's presented to us verbally when we come to the table of the lord the gospel is presented to us visually and so that's that's the first benefit of coming to the table of the lord by faith we behold the gospel um the broken body the shed blood um and when we when we receive that bread and wine by faith um we believe and we really are receiving spiritual nourishment. We believe we are, and we are receiving spiritual nourishment from God through his son by the spirit. We are, we, you know, it's a, it's, it's a means and we, we, God, we believe God is a God who works by means, you know, faith comes through the faith comes through the hearing of the word and the word is a, the message of Christ. God works through means. He works through the preaching of the word. He works through, also this gospel ordinance the lord's supper and as we behold the cross as we as we feed by faith uh we believe that we grow in grace and we actually have communion with christ the the living the living resurrected christ the crucified and resurrected christ we believe is present by his spirit and we are in communion we are in fellowship with him we have opportunity to bring thankfulness and praise to god for the gift of his son and we have opportunity to pledge and to god our 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 faith and our commitment to him and uh and it's also an opportunity to to love and fellowship with our brethren who are gathered also our fellowship is with Christ. Our fellowship is with the brethren. So those are some of the the benefits I believe, Justin, that are outlined there in uh, the confession. That's yeah. really good. Well, I want to talk some more about sacramental theology, but we are out of time this week, so we'll do that in uh, some overtime on Patreon. But before we do that, um, if folks listening to this would like uh, a, maybe a primer level book uh, to further examine. Uh, the views of the Lord's Supper, and particularly uh, the Reformed view, uh, and maybe a more advanced book. What what reading would you recommend uh, our listeners look into? Well, there are quite a number of very very helpful books out there, and there's been a lot of books written on the Lord's Supper in the last ten years. Um, but there is a book by um, Matheson, Keith Matheson, called "Given for You," um, and I. I believe it's produced, it's published by Presbyterian and Reformed. And it, it's a very helpful book. But I, you know, I think I think Calvin's writings in his institute are very helpful on this doctrine. But Math Matheson is very helpful. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, as we wrap up here, Justin, what are we talking about next week? Next week we are going to be diving into, of course, following this, nothing else other than baptism. Uh, I think that's going to get interesting. Uh, should be a lot of fun uh, with Blake and I coming from 
slightly different views here. Um, so that'll be good. And we are going to be sipping a Capoletti Vino Aperitivo, um, which I am very excited about. Uh, should be delicious. Uh, yeah, Blake, um, somehow, some way, we've managed to maintain membership with our dear friends where? Uh, the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a Reformed perspective. Guys, head over to reformedpodcasts.com. You can subscribe to the MegaFeed, get all of the wonderful shows, the different programming. There's pastors, theologians, lay people like us, all talking theology from different angles, different experiences. You've got Baptist persuasions, Presbyterians, a little bit of Dutch influence with the Bobcast, reading the works of, of Herman Bavink, um, some more historical theology analysis, great interviews on there, great content all around. Uh, definitely want to check that out. And Justin, if folks want to hear more Distilling Theology, if they want to hear some of the extended conversation that's about to take place, where can they go? Yeah, well, uh, if they want to hear more Distilling Theology, we'll bless them, uh, truly. Uh, but they can head on over to patreon.com slash distillingtheology, uh, where you can sign up for $4.99 a month, uh, less than the overpriced Starbucks you really don't need this week. Uh, head on over there, join our family, and we will be happy to give you um, unedited, raw video content a week or so early, typically. Um, you'll get extended conversations like the one we're about to have, um, and uh, lots and lots of uh, good content there. And if you join us at $14.99 a month, uh, you'll get an extended, um, after three months, you'll, you'll, you'll get a, a specific mug for patrons only, uh, as well as some other stuff down the pipeline and some additional conversations there as well. Um, guys, it's through Patreon we're able to continue to do this and provide things like merch and, and all this bonus content. We really appreciate you guys. We love you. Uh, thank you for becoming part of our Distilling Theology family. Um, and Blake, uh, if they want to get even more Distilling Theology, where can they hit us up? Join us on our social media pages, predominantly facebook.com slash distillingtheology. We post updates there. We have live videos there occasionally. Uh, Instagram.com uh, slash distillingtheology or at Distilling Theology on Instagram, where we'll post photographs of books, spirits, uh, coffees, all kinds of fun stuff. So you don't want to miss that. And also join our discussion group. Just search Distilling Theology, answer the membership questions, and come on in. The discussion is fine. We have Baptists and Presbyterians coexisting uh, peacefully and and discussing <laughs> weighty doctrine, but also encouraging and, and uh, edifying one another. And you don't have to enjoy distilled spirits to be there, though we will certainly be talking about them. Um, in that group, but we have plenty of people there who also don't drink, and we we rejoice with them as well. So there's no uh, no pressure going on there. But uh, on that note, guys, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, be all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you guys so much for listening. Enjoy this sneak peek from the full version of this episode, available exclusively at Patreon.com/slash Distilling Theology. How does the Lord's Supper fit in with our understanding of these means of grace as Reformed believers? And I guess more broadly, how do those means of grace fit into the life of the believer? You know, the Reformed reformed theology and the Reformed churches historically have taught that the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace, you know, these are ordinary things. Preaching, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these are ordinary things that God has given to his church, but God by his spirit uses them in an extraordinary way and and God has in his word commanded us to use these means and he will pour his grace into our lives uh, as we use these means and 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 so these three means you know the the, the, the preaching of the, the word of God the preaching of the word of God 
the 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 Lord's Supper, the the uh, the, bap, the you know baptism of believers and their children. Uh, you'll deal with that issue next week.